I'll be reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 3 on page 664 of the Bibles. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in his time. He has, seen, he has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Whatever is, has already been, and whatever will be, has been before, and God will call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. I also said to myself, As for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? Good morning everyone. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. In uh, March 1989, um, I was in my final year of studies at Moore College. Um, We'd been planning on going into parish ministry at the end of that time, but Susan was working as um, a research person at the research department in the Reserve Bank. And in March of that year, she won a scholarship to study a master's degree at the University of British Columbia. Uh, She was offered a place, fully funded, and she accepted that place. But then she started to feel sick in the morning. And uh, we figured something was up, went, got checked out from the doctor, and we realised that Thomas was on the way. Barely had she accepted the position, then she had to ring up and say, sorry, but I'm not coming. And instead of being surrounded in the next year by the snowy mountains of Vancouver, we were surrounded by uh, the white cotton fields of Wee-Waw. And at the time, we were very disappointed uh, because it wasn't what we were planning But looking back, we uh, could see that God's timing was perfect. It wasn't obvious at the time, but it was obvious afterwards. 
And this morning we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, as Andrew said at the beginning, probably the most famous chapter of Ecclesiastes and one of the most famous in the whole of the Bible because of that beautiful poem that it begins with. There is a time for everything, a season for every activity under the heavens. And what strikes me about that comment as we've been reading through the book of Ecclesiastes is just how positive it is. Uh, Because from what we've seen of the teacher, that resigned cynic, as I described him a few weeks ago, we would expect him to perhaps be a bit more negative in his comments about time, Uh, to talk about how short time is, how we never seem to have enough of it. You know, we're always chasing time, always running out of it. Or perhaps to talk about the tyranny of time, like the ancient philosopher Platius did. In one of his uh, writings, he was bemoaning the latest timekeeping device, and he said, the gods confound the man who first found out how to divide the hours. Confound him who has so wretchedly cut and hacked my days to pieces. Confound the man who has set up in this place a sundial. Uh, That was the latest timekeeping device in his day, and he didn't like it uh, because it ruined his day. And we might expect him to be negative like that, but he's not. He's very positive. So let's look at what he has to teach us. And I've got three points this morning. Uh, First of all, we need to look at the God who orders time in verses 1 to 8. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. The first thing the teacher says is that time is not arbitrary. Rather, it has a purpose, it has a direction, and those things come from God and from his oversight of time. And within the continuum of time which God orders are embedded events and seasons which God also plans. And so time is not random and chaotic, but it is ordered by God. There is a time for every activity, a season for every activity. The German theologian Gerhard von Rad said, every event has its definite place in the time order. The event is inconceivable without its time, and vice versa. Now, if you're astute, and I know you are, Uh, you'll be thinking, well, isn't there a tension here? Because you've been telling us over the last couple of weeks that there is a twistedness to the world that no one can untangle. The world is fallen. It's meaningless. But now you're saying that within that twistedness and fallenness that God is in control. He is still sovereign and he is still ordering time. And yes, you're correct, that's what I'm saying. And more importantly, it's what the teacher is saying. He is saying that the world is fallen, but that does not mean that God is not in control. He is still in control. His hands are still firmly on the wheel. He is ordering time. And that ought to be a great encouragement to us because sometimes we feel as though the wheels of time are turning, turning, and we're just caught up in a series of events that are random and chaotic and are grinding us into the ground. And the teacher says, no, God is in control of time. There is a time for everything, a season for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. Now, some of the things that 
uh, he lists here, we have no say or control over. None of us have any control over when we are born or when we, are, or when we die. But they're not arbitrary events. They're appointments, if you like. The psalmist says, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God knows when we'll die. He has set the, appointment, the appointed time for each one of us. He knows. It's not a random event. Uh, so we have no control over those things, over our birth, over our death. But some of the times that follow, we do have some control over. A time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep, a time to laugh, time to mourn, a time to dance, time to scatter stones, and a time to gather them, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search, a time to give up, a time to keep, and a time to throw away, a time to tear, and a time to mend a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. The skillful farmer knows when it's time to plant. He knows when it's time to harvest. The doctor knows when it's time to heal. He knows when he can no longer offer healing. And if we are sensitive, then we will know when it's time to weep and we'll know when it's time to laugh and we'll know that it's not appropriate to, to laugh when you should be weeping or vice versa. Now, at this point, Solomon is drawing on conventional wisdom, the type of wisdom that we find in the book of Proverbs, for example, the wisdom that searches out the order and meaning that exists in the world because God placed it there when he created everything. And some of that we would just call uh, common sense. And that's one of the roles of conventional wisdom, to know the time to know when to embrace, to know when to refrain from embracing, to know when to search or to know when to uh, throw things away because, as Marie Kondo says, they no longer spark joy. There's a time for all of those things, either directly because God has ordained them or indirectly because he has given us the wisdom or godly common sense to discern it. And so firstly, we need to look up to the God who orders time. Secondly, we need to look within because God has set eternity within our hearts, verses 9 to 15. So far, the writer's been talking about how God orders time, how it makes sense because God stands behind it and is controlling it. But from our point of view, it doesn't always make sense, does it? Sometimes we look things happen to us and we think that the world is out of control. We can't always find meaning in the things that happen. And in verse 9, the writer forces us to confront that question. He says, What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. So he's provoking us. He's asking us to question what is missing. Because while we often find some meaning in our work as we go about it day in and day out, 
it does often appear just to be a burden. And he goes on and says in verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Now, what's his point there? Well, I think he's saying that God offers us a life here and now that is joyful, but not self-sufficient. That makes some sense, but that only makes complete sense uh, when we factor God into it. Because the eternity of God's plans matches something inside of us. It matches the eternity that God has placed within our hearts. Life under the sun only makes sense when we look to God. But because of the fallenness of the world, we're often reluctant to do that, aren't we? We want to find meaning in our work and life and love apart from God. But the writer's saying here it cannot be done. Now, down through the years, many writers have expressed this in in lots of ways. Augustine uh, famously said, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. Pascal, the French uh, mathematician and philosopher, said there's a God-shaped vacuum inside each one of us. But the person who said it best, I think, or at least in the way that resonates most with me, is C.S. Lewis when he said in Mere Christianity, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. And then he goes on and says in The Weight of Glory, another essay that he wrote, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshippers, for they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. That's our situation, isn't it? That's what the teacher is saying. God has placed within creation this beauty And when we see it, whether it be in a piece of art or in our work or in music or in a relationship, it strikes a chord in us. Uh, it, It strikes a desire for more of it because we know that's what life is all about and it's what we want. But we will, it will never be satisfied by the things that remind us of it, only by what it points to, to God. And the teacher says in the midst of life we need to look inside because it's there in our hearts that God has set eternity. But in the meantime, while we live in this fallen world, the teacher says, how do do we live? Verse 12, I know there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink 
and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Now those words should sound pretty familiar by now because the teacher said them several times, hasn't he? It's pretty much what he said in the last chapter. We're to find satisfaction in the simple things of life, those vestiges of the Garden of Eden as we saw last time in chapter 2 that remind us of what we've lost but of what we will regain as we fear God and come into his kingdom. But as we go about doing that within the cycle of life, we need to recall that God will bring everything to account one day. And here the teacher sounds an ominous note. There's judgment ahead, and that's the third point. Look ahead, because judgment is coming, he says in verse 16. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. Now, we've heard this expression before, under the sun, and it usually goes along with the writer talking about the meaninglessness of life. And this is no exception. As he looks at the world, he sees that where there should be judgment, there's not judgment, there's wickedness. Where there should be justice, there is wickedness as well. Now, I think he's talking generally here about the courts, and sadly, nothing has changed, has it? Often these days, the halls of justice are corridors of corruption, and the person who wins at court is not the person who's right, but the person who can afford the most expensive barrister. Uh, we had a client in our office recently who was an international student. She got married to an Aussie guy who was very abusive. And in the end, when he was holding her on a train station and yelling at her in a way that she didn't like, she'd had enough, she snapped at him and she bit him on the arm so that he'd let go. He reported it to the police as abusing him. The police issued her with an apprehended violence order and she was charged with assault and had a criminal record. Her visa was going to be cancelled. She was going to go back to her own country without completing her studies. So unjust. So unjust. But that's the way things often go in the world, isn't it? There's so much injustice. Where there should be justice, there is injustice. So much injustice and abuse and exploitation, whether it be domestic violence or people trafficking or slavery or banks ripping us off and uh, charging us for services that they've never provided. So much injustice. Uh, thankfully, in this lady's case, there was a happy ending because one of the people uh, witnessing this on the train station gave her number to her. She was a lady who happened to be married to a barrister. That barrister offered to represent her for free in her appeal case at court, and she won. She's now free to stay in Australia to finish her degree and to get on with her life without a criminal record. Praise God. It was so good, isn't it, to hear when justice is done because often it's not, and there's something within us that cries out for justice to be done. And in the face of the injustice of the world, the writer encourages us, because he says in verse 17, I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge 
every deed. Now we've just heard in the earlier verses of this chapter that there is a time for everything. And the teacher says that includes judgment. There's a time ahead when God will judge every deed. Justice might not be done under the sun, but it will be done. That's what the writer is saying. But when? Well, his answer is in verses 18 to 20. And these verses are uh, a bit tricky, uh, but hopefully uh, not too tricky. Uh, They contain a point of comparison and a point of difference between man or humans and beasts. And firstly, the point of comparison is that humans and beasts both have the breath of life in them and both die when they lose that breath. So if you look look in verse 19, surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no disadvantage and no advantage over animals. So there's a point of similarity there. Both have breath, both lose that breath when they die. But the point of difference is that after they die, they go to different places. Now, this is where it gets tricky because the verse doesn't appear to be saying that. It seems to be saying the opposite. Because he says in verse 20, all go to the same place, all come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. Now there's a, a translational problem here. Most of our translations put uh, this uh, verse as a question, which is what the NIV does, but it shouldn't be a question. It should really be a statement. It's saying that when, peop- when we die, we do go to a different place from the animals. We go up to God and to judgment, the animals go down. So we're similar in that we both die, but different in that it's only humans who face judgment and death. So the writer is saying that although we're surrounded by injustice here and now, God will put that right in the future. There is, as we saw in the earlier part of the chapter, a time to be born, a time to die, and there is also a time for judgment, a time for wrongs to be put right and for the fallenness of the world to be sorted out. Now, it's often claimed that the Old Testament doesn't have a well-worked-out theology of life after death. But I beg to differ. I think it does, and I think it's clear here and in other places, but certainly here. And what is clear here is even more clear in the New Testament. So, for example, Paul says in Acts chapter 17 and verse 31, for he, that is God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. See, all of us are born into this world. All of us will die. That's where the passage started. Time to be born, a time to die. And because of Jesus, all of us will rise from death to face the judgment. God has set a time for that as well. It will happen. And the teacher says here we need to live in such a way that we are ready for it. We need to look within. God has set eternity in our hearts. He has made us in such a way that this world and all it offers will never satisfy. Only God will satisfy. Only Jesus will. 
the meaninglessness and twistedness of the world and of our own lives is not meant to drive us to despair. It's meant to drive us to Jesus. He has given proof of the judgment by rising from the dead, but he is also the one who has taken the judgment already by dying on the cross for the twistedness and fallenness of all who trust in him. You see, the God who orders time has nailed two stakes into the ground, the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. He has set a time for them both. When the time was right, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us from the law. That first coming has already happened. The second is yet to come, but the time is set. It will take place. God has set the time. But if we take note of the first, we do not need to fear the second. If we ignore the first, then we do. Friends, do not ignore that voice within that God has set there, pointing you to eternity, pointing you to him and to his son Jesus. Don't ignore it. But listen to it and run to Jesus who has died on the cross for your sins, who has already taken your place in judgment and who alone can satisfy the deep longings that you and I have. Run to him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are the one who has made a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. We thank you that we are not victims of the tyranny of time, but that we, uh, our lives and our existence are in the hands of a loving, sovereign God and heavenly Father. Father, we pray that you would help us to always listen to that uh, voice, that eternity that you have set within our hearts and that points us to you. And we pray that we would recognise that nothing and no one except you will satisfy those deep longings that you've placed there. We thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus, who came at the right time and who prepares us for the judgment that will come at your appointed time. And we pray that we might be ready for that by placing our trust in him and clinging to him. Thank you for the provision of his death and his life. Thank you for your love and your sovereignty. Amen.